that was a really pivotal moment where you realized that however young you are, your inherent desire should be taken into account if you're able to understand it. And kids may not understand the details of nuances of different types of outcomes, but they sure know about life and death. And when they've been through it so many times, they know what they're prepared to put up with to keep going, to keep having some quality of life. And we have to always be aware that they are listening and they are taking in. And if they don't get listened to, we're basically sending them to a court and making a decision over their life without getting them any any involvement in it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode four of the third season of the Not Mini Adults podcast, Pioneers for Children's Healthcare and Wellbeing. My name is David Cole, and you've just heard Jay, Jay O'Moen, who is a consultant paediatric neurosurgeon at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, UK. Once again, I'm also joined by my wife, Hannah, and together we are the co-founders of children's charity, Thinking of Oscar. This week, we have the absolute pleasure of speaking to Jay, and the theme that we're going to be discussing is all around empathy. As you might imagine, as a neurosurgeon, it's a very important part of his work. Those of you in the UK may have come across Jay when he appeared in two highly acclaimed BBC Fly on the Wall documentary series following the work of neurosurgeons. Jay is a specialist in three primary areas. Firstly, paediatric neurosurgery, where he tackles tumours and congenital problems in children. Secondly, craniofacial reconstruction, working with plastic surgeons and others to give babies a chance of a different, hopefully better life. And finally, as an expert witness, employed by the courts, the police and lawyers to help investigate potential crimes or to analyse alleged child abuse cases. We really wanted to talk to Jay, not only to discuss the amazing work that he is doing and the ways in which he is employing empathy to help to speak to both patients and parents, but also because of his mission to give a voice to those patients so often overlooked because of their age. Jay, hello. Welcome to the Not Many Adults podcast. Thank you so much for for agreeing to come on. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Jay, we'll talk a little bit about kind of how we heard about you and your book and, and all the work that you're doing, but it'd be great if you could just maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do and and how you got there, please? Yes, a short version is I'm a paediatric neurosurgeon, so that's a children's brain surgeon at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, and I've been here for 17 or 18 years, and I sort of go through the standard training of being a doctor and then deciding to do surgery, doing my basic surgical training and then neurosurgical training. And then I, after I did that in London, and then I went off to Glasgow and worked there for six years. And then I, at that point, I realized I wanted to do children's neurosurgery. So then I went off to Toronto, which is one of the world's sort of big centers for children's neurosurgery and spent a year there, which was a real turning point, realizing this is what I really want to do. Then came back and got a job in Oxford. And like many of us, once you get into a place, you really get your, your roots settled down. And so really have been here since then and I can't really see myself moving now until someone puts me underneath a tree hopefully many years from now. What was so important about your experience in Toronto why was it so pivotal for you? It was a time when I'd done my training I mean always learning but done my basic training of neurosurgery I'd done my exams 
a past. So I kind of knew that I was going to become a neurosurgeon. You know, I was going to get a consultant job somewhere, but it enabled me to really concentrate and focus the mind on just kiddies neurosurgery. The setup in Toronto for children's neurosurgery is very intense, highly academic, which I'm not, but it enabled me to see the level of academia that you can do if you want to do that. Lots of operating, fantastic bosses. I did have fantastic bosses before, I should say, in case any of them are listening. But I went by myself. So I left my fiance in Glasgow and she was doing a PhD. So off I went and I basically could just live in the hospital and a small pub around the corner. And between those two, I could spend a year just doing children's neurosurgery, which was really what I wanted. I could, you know, I didn't have to think I need to be somewhere else or do something else. Not that I didn't miss my fiance, I should also say, in case she's listening in. But, you know, when you are doing something and you're so engrossed in it that you don't really realize what's going on around you. And sometimes if you're reading a book, you know, you don't realize that everyone's gone and the lights are all off and you, there's one light on there. In actual fact, that was for me, it was like a year of that. And it just it went past without me realising it. It was an amazing year. Well, an amazing experience to have been able to, uh, I don't mean that it was selfish, but as in just to be able to devote, there are very few moments in your life when you can really invest in yourself like that. It was, it was. Lots of people go off and travel after their A-levels and, you know, or take a gap year. I didn't do that. I basically spent my entire life from school onwards just moving almost one day to the next from one job to another so the maximum I ever had off between jobs was a Friday to a Monday I just went from job to job to job and never took any time out I never really traveled around the world I went on wee little holidays but I never really traveled around the world to find myself I never really found the the need to do that but what was interesting was I could realize that this is I'm now on the cusp of becoming a consultant being in charge having all the responsibility of being the person in charge of looking after a little person. And so this gave me a year to really polish my armor, sharpen my sword before I, in my mind, went into independent battle. I think I heard you actually on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show. I think that's where I first first came about you. And you were talking about your book, Everything That Makes Us Human. And I remember just kind of stopped in the driveway, just dropped the kids off at school and listening to to what you had to say and then when I managed to you know pick up the book and find it there was very early on there was a there was a line that you said or a couple of sentences that you said that I'm just going to read out which made me just know that we had to try and get you on here and and if you don't mind I'm just going to read them which is I became a doctor to save lives I became a neurosurgeon because I believed it to be the highest achievement in medicine I became a pediatric neurosurgeon to give a voice to those patients so long overlooked because of their age to give them a life to give them a chance, to give them respect. Now, I'm quite emotional kind of reading that because that's what we're, I guess, trying to do from a charitable perspective. But that is such powerful words and such powerful kind of vision that you took on and, and wrote down there. Yeah, it wasn't an instant decision. Clearly, each of those have happened at a different point in time. But each of those decisions have, again, allowed me to focus and concentrate the big soup that is wanting to help people into, well, how do I do it in the best way that I've got skills to do it? Not everybody can do it the same way. Uh, How do I use my skills and abilities to do the best I can for 
the people who I really see as needing my skills again. Of course, I'm going to say that children are the most important, but somebody who does adult work equally has a valid argument for that. Every adult was somebody's child at some point, so it crosses right over. But for me, I felt that, you know, having heard so much discussion about the need to go back, if we think back to why people concentrate on certain jobs. So if I just divert for a second and think about when you do surgical training, we used to do surgical training, everybody had to do general surgery and everybody had to do A&E. Basically, the reason was if there was a war, if it's essentially an adult orientated world, which is, let's face it, not a pleasant one, this is what you need surgeons to be able to do is be in the field and treat abdominal thoracic wounds and do emergency work. That's how all of surgical training was designed from wartime. And for so many years, it just seemed that kids just kind of got the bum end of that deal because the investment was never in children's services because it you really get down to it. If you save children's lives, they don't automatically go on to make money for the state. If you fix a broken leg on a 25-year-old, they're going to go back and earn taxes and give money back to the state. So if you like, they're going to pay for their medical treatment by going back and working. Most children, especially, again, neurosurgical children, lots of neurosurgical children, they never really earn huge amounts for the state, may get jobs that pay taxes, but will always be slightly lower than the average amount of tax income for various reasons. It doesn't mean that what they do is going to be any less important for them or for society but financially they're going to be lower and that that means that kids get pushed to the side when money is allocated so i felt that natural sense of injustice as to why should kids who haven't done the bad things in the world get the bum end of the deal when it comes to allocation so again it's that thing that kids don't get a voice and that's in, in medicine, that's in society, that's at home. If I think about my personal experience, I was once, I was telling up one of my kids and, and my wife said, we really should try not to do this because we would never talk to adults the way we talk to kids. We would never treat adults the way we treat kids because you'd get punched in the face by most adults if you shouted at them. And you certainly wouldn't expect them to do what you do. So why... Why do we do that to kids? And that is this thing that goes through society, I think, that kids are still, to some extent, to be seen and not heard. And that I wanted to get into that and, and make them heard. I told our three-year-old off yesterday morning because he'd been in and out of our room since 4.30am telling us his bedroom was boring. So once we'd come into the hours of the day that we were meant to be spending time with him, I was a little groggy and just frustrated. So I, so I told him off first thing, Leo, tomorrow when you wake up, if you wake up in the night, roll over, go back to sleep, then you won't be bored because you'll be asleep. So I told him off first thing. And then later on, an hour later, I'm still groggy. And I repeat this in front of our eldest. And Leo instantly objects and said, but... Mummy, you told me, you know, I said sorry about this already, but it is the point that you've just, like, he was justifiably objecting that, you know, I was bringing this subject back up when he had already addressed it. So uh, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. It's fresh in my mind. It's a painful lesson, isn't it, when you realise that that's actually us, that we do that without even thinking it as parents and as not usually for anybody else's kids, although you'd quite like to sometimes, 
but we do. We run that strict hierarchy, and then we object when society runs that strict hierarchy on kids. But it just reflects what we do ourselves, doesn't it? One of the the interesting things, I think, synergies around some of the conversation or quite a lot of the conversations that we've had that you are kind of portraying is empowerment. So, you know, empowering the child, it's just a, it's a constant thread that we have through many of the conversations that we have. And that is a big thing for you as well, right? So you want to make sure that if a child is able to understand what is happening to them, then, then you're able to try and convey that to them and give them the opportunity to really understand. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Really important is avoiding the automatic assumption that a child or somebody who has different abilities from everybody else is not able to comprehend and be involved in the decision-making. And that's, I can't remember if, if I did talk about it in the book or not, but there was a wee kitty that we talked over this patient for a good 10 minutes about a tumour that had come back and was, and was essentially going to, to kill them, whether we, and we thought about trying to do this operation and was it fair and was it going to be too painful and difficult for the child to bear and the parent was bearing towards no and we were bearing towards no and eventually after about 10 minutes of this conversation where we were basically settling on no and this kid said can I mommy can I say something and I said oh yeah sure and this is the only I'll probably start weeping when I say it but this kid just looked at the parents and us and they said I want to live (laughs) I'm going to start crying because that was a really pivotal moment where you realized however young you are your inherent desire should be taken into account if you're able to understand it. And kids may not understand the details of nuances of different types of outcomes, but they sure know about life and death. And when they've been through it so many times, they know what they're prepared to put up with to keep going, to keep having some quality of life. And we have to always be aware that they are listening and they are taking in. And if they don't get listened to, we're basically sending them to a court and making a decision over their life uh, without getting them any uh, any involvement in it it's really important and then you move on from that young child to which an area which i hope we don't do but which i know does happen is that if you have difficulties in expressing yourself if you're physically unable to express yourself with words or with very clear actions there's an automatic assumption that that means you can't understand and again, this happens even to older kids and adults. People make decisions for them while they're able to hear and understand what's going on. And if you just wait or give them a different way, you can get their involvement and they, they should have that autonomy to be able to make those decisions. And we take that away from people with different abilities as well. You've just touched on the answer to my question, but I'm curious to understand a bit more. You said that for you know older children or where they maybe it's harder for them to express themselves and one of and my question is about the methods that you've developed to you know solicit their points of view and one that you've suggested a minute ago was time you know how how else have you made that work so that you feel that they're being respected and heard well with kids the first is you have you've got to talk to them you sometimes you have to talk to the parents about more detailed risks and benefits that they won't understand but at some point, and at fairly early on, you need to talk to them in a way that they can understand. And then they feel that they're part of the conversation. They're part of the team trying to fight whatever the illness is that they've got. 
if they're not part of it, then they're not fully psychologically engaged in it. And we know that being psychologically engaged in treating illness is hugely important in recovery. If you give up, you tend to do worse than if you say, you know, I'm going to really, I'm going to fight this. And we know that. So you talk to them, you talk to them at their level. And again, if you think about what it must be like to lie in a bed and have four or five six-foot giants stand around you, talking in a way that you may catch a few words, which are probably the most terrifying words. You know, for me, the words must be things like tumour, operation, scar for older kids. All of these, catching these words, but not really getting the gist of what the rest of the conversation is. Well, that's got to be pretty scary. If you were an adult in that situation, you'd be utterly terrified. Imagine now being a kid. So you get down, get down to their height, physical height, make eye contact. And then they know that you are talking to them, not about them. And I think once we do that, you can usually... You can usually mean usually means that when you then talk to them, that they know that you are talking to them, not about them, and they can trust you. So you also have to be as honest as you can be to them. So I tell my patients, I tell my kids that it's going to hurt when they wake up. It's going to be sore. We'll give you lots of painkillers. We'll make it as little soreness as possible but it is going to hurt. There's no point saying to kids, it's not going to hurt because they're going to wake up with a scar from ear to ear. You know what? It's going to hurt. But again, we tell them that. And I say to them, that means that when you wake up and it does hurt, you remember that Mr. J said it will get better. And again, it's about them saying, oh yeah, he told me it would hurt, but he also told me that it will be better by tomorrow. And once they know that you are telling them a big truth, they will take comfort and benefit in knowing that it will get better. Whereas if you say to them, it's not going to hurt and then it hurts, why should they trust you that you tell them it's going to get better by the next day or by the next week? Or if they have a weakness, you say, look, it may well be weak in your arm, but we'll do lots of physio. It may take weeks, but it's probably going to get better. And if it doesn't, we'll work around it. Then they're part of the conversation. They know what's going on. And that always ends up with a better outcome. There's a code, I think, that you have, you know, code, if you, if you will, uh, within surgery, which is watch one, do one, teach one, right? Which I think we've, you know, heard a few times. But is um, first of all, it's interesting to understand that and just, you know, the kind of nuance of, the, of how that works. But I'm hoping that that has also happened when it comes to that kind of bedside manner and the compassion elements of it and teaching your, your kind of students, as it were, or, or the medical students coming through, how to have that interaction as well. Because I think I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it feels like it's a relatively new way of, you know, being able to think about how, how one discusses what's going on with children and that empowerment element of it. And the, and the reason I say, or maybe guess that, is because we're starting to see technologies to try and help with that element, to try and empower the child, to try and bring them into the decision-making process um, more than they are already. Definitely. Kids adopt technology so fast that we are struggling to keep up to be able to make the apps or make the devices to keep up with their ability to use them. So the answer to your first question, David, is yes, absolutely. We don't do see one, do one, teach one anymore, thank goodness. You see a lot, you do a lot, and then you start to do them by yourself. So there's much more oversight of what happens in the operating theatre from 
the more senior members of the, of the team than they used to be. But we do ward rounds with our trainees and they're involved in the conversations. They hear how we do it. And you'll hear different ways from different people. And it's not that one person is right. But what you get to do is by doing as many ward rounds and as many uh, of these in-depth, difficult conversations, you get to start to pick and choose bits from each of your bosses and go, I like the way they did that. I like the way they did that. I didn't like that. So we'll get rid of that one. But you can still take positives from everyone that you learn from. And then you build up your own style. But I think as long as the style respects the patient and gives them a voice in it, 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 it's fine how you want to do it. You know, some of my colleagues are much more nicely patriarchal. So much more about, don't worry, I'll sort it. It'll be fine. If you genuinely can do that with honesty in your face, people will go with that system as well. That's not usually my method. I'm a, I'm a bit more of a of, of an equal conversationist, but it's not the one's better and the other's worse. It doesn't matter. As long as the patient and the parents feel that connection, feel that trust, feel that unspoken signing on a contract that you do when you look the parents and the child in the eye and you tell them what you're going to do, you're making a contract there. You know, you are signing on the dotted line with that family that you will look after that child as best as you possibly can. However you do it, you've got to be able to make sure that you make that contract. And you're right, using technology to help kids involved in that. So that's watching things about operations, watching you know animated versions of treatments, understanding and reading enables you to have a thought about what questions you want to ask the health professional when you finally meet them or when you meet them for the second time, if need be. There's downsides because there can be unregulated education on the internet, some of which can be very wrong. But we usually try and send them to various websites that we know are, are trustable. But technology is is here and can only help to educate. And education lowers anxiety, education lowers stress. It's got to be good for the for the kids. I know that one of the areas that um, David was um, wanting to cover this afternoon was around the role of technology, not just for aiding communication with the children, but practically, uh, perhaps in the operating theatre as well. Just you know, the angle that you've been thinking about was to what extent can technology reduce risk of some of these complex procedures? But the sort of flip side of that that I was also curious about was, you know, when you're talking about innovation and new technology, then there is also some inherent risk there. And, you know, when you're in the most you know vulnerable of vulnerable situations dealing with children and neurological issues. So in my mind, that's a very delicate space to be, I mean, working and not operating in, then how have you been able to pull technology in in ways that you're comfortable with, where it's the the potential that it lends to you goes far beyond any concerns that you might have by the fact, by virtue of the fact that it is a new way of doing something? Yeah, the additional levels of technology that are being promoted to, for example, us as neurosurgeons, is exponentially increasing and not always for the better. So I have driven my car into what was quite clearly a field because the sat-nav told me to turn right. And my wife said, I wouldn't turn right if I was you. That looks like a field. But I said, no, but sat-nav, I mean, it was a Volvo. So I don't know how it told me that lie, but it did. And I think we, we all have a natural 
ability to switch off our own thought processes and trust technology. And what we have to do when we're doing operations is be very sure that you use technology along with your highly trained knowledge that you have and constantly be checking that what it's telling you is correct and is the best thing for the patient. If we think about the technology that we use now, for example, guidance in theatre, basically sat-nav for the brain when we're doing an operation. Now, that indeed can help us to remove all of a brain tumour or to get a tube into the correct part of the brain. However, the decision-making about how much of that tumour you want to take out cannot rest just on this is the abnormal area and therefore we want to take it all out. It's having a knowledge about the pathology. What is sort of tumour is it? Do we need to take it all out or is it something we can leave a bit in and treat with another way? But also about that relationship you have with the patient. What a concert level pianist may choose is different from what somebody who works as a shelf stacker in Sainsbury's may choose from the point of view of risk benefit for it. Not so much as a children's neurosurgeon, but when I was a trainee, I remember that very example because we had a concert level pianist who chose and said, do not go for this bit of tumour if you think it's likely to cause me to be unable to play the piano. Because if I can't play the piano, I might as well not be here. And I am willing to take a shorter lifespan with my piano than a longer lifespan without. Whether we agree or not, if you don't know the patient, if you haven't taken time to talk to them, it's just another tumour, let's get the tumour out, let's take it all out. But that, again, removes the autonomy from the patient to make that decision about what they're prepared to do. And, you know, we've taken it on and we said, we will fix you. But they didn't ask to be fixed in that way. So you need to have that conversation to know what the personalised is. It's a big thing, isn't it? Personalised treatment. And that goes right the way down to, it comes down to the fact that you need to know your patient to be able to have that conversation and make that call with them. It's only in recent years I've really understood the value or power of judgment and instinct, because before this moment of realisation, for me, which, which was actually related to Oscar, I had just seen that as, I would have said, that a reference book or a computer or somebody with a different job title to me that was related in the field, that that fact coming out of those sources would be of greater value than my judgment coming or my perspective coming from instinct or judgment. And I know now that that's not the case and that these, the instinct and judgment are, in a sense, many, many data points formed over 10 or 20 years in my life that have validity. Of course, that's further accentuated when yours is very specific training that's come to bear, but it's a useful life lesson that you can apply beyond theatre. It is, but it's also, it's the reason why you can't, for some conditions you can, but for the majority, especially surgical, you can't use a computer yet to do that. You can use a computer, you can use AI to show you the abnormality, but you can't yet use AI to decide how you're going to treat it best for that particular person. You, you can't use it to be able to have a conversation with a person about what risk-benefit ratio they are prepared to take for any particular treatment. 
And until you do that, until AI is so far advanced that they can have that conversation and it can make analysis far beyond what we rely on, which is having a relationship that they can trust us and tell us the truth, but also being able to gauge, well, actually, you've not really been able to look them in the eye while you've been saying this. Are you sure this is actually how you feel or are you just going along with it? And getting that sense of, are they telling you what they actually want to do or not? And of course, AI is coming in. It's coming in a rather nefarious way that I've been reading about, you know, looking at pupils and sweatiness when they're interrogating prisoners. But eventually that will come down to a hospital setting where we're talking to patients and wondering if they're telling us the truth or not and using that information. But until that comes, which is probably a long way away, it is about the patient trusting us enough to tell us what they honestly think rather than what they think we should be told. And I can't see the time in my lifespan that a computer will be able to do that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do a uh, kind of you know link link here between you know so we, so we both I I work in AI currently Hannah Hannah has worked in AI and and looks at it and I think we certainly recognise that in order for AI to really be the best it can be and one thing that AI will never be able to do and what we really kind of the substance and I guess the underlying theme of this conversation is around empathy and understanding you know the patient in front of you the child in front of you the the family in front of you. And we were discussing just before we we kind of pressed record that element of how important it is to be able to really kind of try and step back and understand more about people around you and what they're going through and having that kind of empathy and understanding around and compassion, I guess, just, just you know, generally. And I know that's a, a topic pretty close to your heart. It is. Look, AI is going to get here. If I think back to real basic AI, it's not very high, but my kids used to have this as a seahorse uh, with a rubber tummy. If they woke up at night, they'd press the tummy and it would do a little glowing light and play a little song. So there is a, an interaction between a human and a machine that the human told the machine, I am feeling sad or distressed or I need soothing. All right, okay, granted it was a one-year-old human but they were still able to tell the machine that by pressing its tummy. And the machine was able to respond by doing the correct soothing actions to help that person. That's a very basic, but that is, it is artificial. And to some level, it is intelligent. Now, you're going to have to go exponentially higher to be able to do what we would like it to do for our patients. But it will get there. It will get to the point where it will be able to understand enough to be able to come up with a conversation that will probably soothe that person to some level. It's all been made by a human and learned from a human. It hasn't learned it by itself, but it will come. And that's not a bad thing. It's no different from putting on classical music when you're feeling anxious or me putting on techno if I'm wanting to concentrate. That's AI to some level. It will come. But it needs a human to put the information into that intelligence. And it's what information it puts in. It's the programmer that will become absolutely vital. If you program the computer to be harsh and cold and to tell people to just get on with it, it will be a fascist AI. If you program it to be much more gentle and have much longer time to be able to hear answers and not log off, and not start thinking, you know, 
I can't hear you say it again. Well, then you're going to have a more caring machine. So it all comes down to what the person is that's doing it. It's the same as whether it's a human who's a horrible, uncaring human or a caring human. They're just putting that into a machine and then that interface will reflect the programmer. And taking the technology aside again, one of the conversations we were having before uh, we we pressed go on on this podcast was around how we'd observed more kindness in the world during the peak of COVID and how people were um, giving others uh, were, be, were being more generous as others were going around their day-to-day work. But that was something that you had a point of view on, you know, in your professional role around, you know, not knowing not knowing what's going on in somebody else's life. Could you talk for a moment around, you know, when, when you're thinking about empathy and how you communicate with your patient, it's not only the child that you're concerned with there, but there would be others, other stakeholders that you're looking out for. Yeah, you are not just treating the child. You are always treating the family as well as the child and taking them on the journey. The child is the centre for the parents as well as for you, but the parents are the next ring out. And if if you don't take them with you, the child will pick up. The child realises the parents don't trust you, then the child's not going to trust you. And so we have a, a selfish responsibility to do it, but also we have a caring responsibility to make sure that parents understand what their child is going to go through and be ready for it. It reflects a society issue of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. As we were saying, people did do for a while and are now stopping doing, is my experience. They are now looking into themselves, into what do I get out of it, what's best for me, not what's overall best or what's fair or what's right it's about what is best for me i try not to be political but to me it's reflecting all parts of society from our government right the way down we're being encouraged to think about ourselves much more than we are about society and we will be much worse off with that decision that the country appears to have already made to go back to that literally just stopping and waiting for a minute with I try and think about this all the time. I think if you see somebody who's driving very slowly, who's really at the roundabout and is not able to get going in a gap where you think, well, of course you could do that. Well, perhaps they've left their really sick spouse or child at home and are going to work. Perhaps they're going to hospital for chemotherapy. Perhaps They have a good friend who's overseas who's desperately sick and they can't get to see them because they can't travel. Perhaps lots of things. Perhaps they're thinking, how the hell am I going to fill my car up with petrol because I've got no money? And how am I going to feed my kids tonight? It's being able to think about how not everybody in that queue waiting to do that roundabout is finding it as easy or as as straightforward as you are that day. I I was once in a queue and there was a turned out to be a colleague of mine, a surgeon, who was in a, a, a large Porsche 4x4 behind me. And I was pretty tired and I'd had a, you know, some difficulties with some patients and I was quite tired. I was just waiting to leave and, and I wanted a big gap. I didn't want to try and switch out. And he started horning and I, I didn't realise who he was. And I, I, I wigged out. I, I should never do this and I'm not advising anybody to do this, but I got out of the car 
And I went round and I said, what is up? What is the matter? He said, oh, you could have gone then. I said, so what? What was going to happen? I waited. But if that had been my 81-year-old dad at that queue, he would have jumped with his car, panicking because someone's horning behind him. And he may have had an accident because his, I mean, he does not go fast at the best of times. And he could have easily had an accident. And what would that have gained you? It would have gained you, the phrase I used, I won't put now, but it would have gained you not very much. So just take a breath. I, sh- I should have got back in my car and I went. But it just encapsulates how we can be super caring. I mean, get in a car or we can go to the pub or we can do lots of other things and disconnect our caring side and become a real chump again. I can be a real chump as well. Let's not uh, beat around the bush there. But I'm trying to try and bring a more caring part to everything I do. And I think if we all do that a wee bit, we'll be better overall. There's one thing I want to talk to you about before I kind of ask you what what tends to be our, our last question, which is around, and it's coming back to what you talked about in terms of just, I think, bringing everyone in and, and thinking about everyone. But when you bring your team together within the operating theatre and the kind of collaboration and what have you. So first of all, you touched on it, but you have, we haven't really talked about it, but you, you like to have loud blaring music and just to, from a concentration point of view. But the more important aspect for me is that culture that you bring to allow everybody, to, you know, the kind of meritocracy of anybody can speak up if they see that something's going wrong. And to me, that's a really important lesson that we should, you know, at least hopefully get out to the listeners. Yes, I mean be clear that that's not just me that's instilled into i think everybody nowadays in hospitals is the ability to speak up if you think something is not right but also i guess you've got to go beyond that and actually have a relationship with other people so knowing the names of the nurses knowing the names of the porters if you know each other's names you're much more likely to say something than if they go oh there's that person who i can't really speak to because they're the surgeon and I'm quote unquote just the porter. Well, actually, everybody's there looking after the patient, and everyone wants the same thing, which is the patient to do well. And while I probably, I think probably most people who know me will say that I run a democratic system, it is slightly autocratic when we're operating. I think that there's there's a time and a place for it, and it's people knowing there's a difference between being a leader and being an autocratic leader. And I hope that I can do one without doing the other. So you have to lead. You're in charge. You're the, the surgeon, the consultant surgeon. And along with your anaesthetist, you are very much running the show in that operating theatre. Officially, it's the scrub nurse who's in charge of the operating theatre. So officially, the scrub nurse can kick us out if they want to. As a junior, that certainly happened. But they won't if you're the person doing the operation. You're a team. And the less experienced or the more junior staff will look to you in a crisis. So the first thing is you do have to be a leader in that you need to be able to lead when everything hits the fan as well as when everything's going great. And at that point, you've got to be able to say, right, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. You do this, you do this, you do this. But to avoid getting into that situation, you want everybody to be able to feel to say, actually, I don't think this is right. I'm not sure about that. Are you sure about this? And again, it's being able to say to one, if you see me doing something wrong, and I verbalize this to my team a lot, if you see me doing something wrong, don't wait and go, yeah, I thought that was a bit odd, but you know, I figured you knew what you were doing. 
no, tell me. And if I'm all right with it, I'll say, no, actually, yeah, no, I know it's a bit unusual, but for these reasons, I wanted to do that. Or, bloody hell, you're right. Thanks very much. Let's look at the other side of the patient's head. Um, maybe we'll, it will be an easier operation. Right down to the basics of checking the side. Is everybody happy? This is the left side of the head. Look at the scan. That's the left side of the head. Real basal stuff. And everybody can get it wrong, which means everyone can help to avoid a mistake happening. Thank you. I was, I, as I said to you, I think before we came on, I'm a bit of a kind of nerd when it comes to the leadership side of things. So I did want to just uh, get that across. But um, it's been so fascinating talking to you and we could absolutely go on forever. But um, I'm sure that you've got very important things to be doing. So, so our kind of final question that we ask to everyone is if you could, if you could change anything within child health uh, or within, within pediatrics, what, what would it be if you had that kind of magic wand? It probably wouldn't be within a hospital framework, but it's recognizing how the environment that children are brought up in at home is the most important thing to how children's health will be long term. So, food, nutrition, love, a roof, things that not all kids have, even in Britain. That's the most important thing that we can do for our kids. What, what I do, the stuff that I do is highfalutin, fancy, expensive, but in brutal terms, small numbers of children. And while what we do is really important because it's what sets us up as an advanced society, caring about the weakest, we haven't even done a very good job at just caring about kids full stop. You know, hungry children, unloved children, uneducated children. This is happening in Britain in 2021, which is age shocker frankly. I don't think we could obviously disagree with that in the, in the slightest. And one of the things that, you know, we're trying to do with this, with, with this podcast is to highlight some of those areas and try and share stories of people that are trying to do things differently. So thank you so much for your, um, thank you for everything that you do, first of all, and for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your um, experience. And, um, you know, we're, we're really grateful for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much to Dr. Jay for joining us this week. As you would have heard, it was a pretty emotional conversation both for, for him and, and us, given the work that he does, but also the reasons behind the job that he has, why he is doing it and why that's so important. We really do feel humbled to speak to amazing people like Jay, and we really hope that you are getting as much out of these conversations as we are. Next week, we're speaking to Richard Hebden, who is the Director of Healthcare and Life Sciences for the British Government's Innovate UK Department. I'm delighted to say that we will be discussing with him how he is helping to support child health and bring more innovation and finances into child health innovation. We really hope that you can join us then. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying it, please do leave us a review as well. We hope you'll join us again next week.